Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us. I am uh, Monique Sultani, the host and creator of Wine OTV, and welcome to the Commonwealth Club. Uh, one of the things I love about wine is that it brings people together and it connects us, and I am so privileged and honored to be here together with you all here today and be connected. Uh, before we get started, I do have a few reminders I'm supposed to read to you. So tonight's program is being recorded, so we kindly ask that you silence your cell phones Apple Watches, you name it, uh, for the duration of our program. Also, if you have any questions for Ray, uh, there should be some forms for you to fill out. There's some question cards that were on your seats. And if you're joining online, you can uh, enter through the uh, YouTube chat. Now, it is my great pleasure to introduce our guest speaker. He has a wonderful resume, and I'm going to read it because it's long. Ray Isle is the author of The World in a Wine Glass, The Insider's Guide to Artisanal, Sustainable, Extraordinary Wines to Drink Now. Ray is the longtime executive wine editor for Food and Wine, as well as the wine and spirits editor for Travel and Leisure, and he writes Food and Wine's monthly what to Drink Now column. Ray has won the IACP Award for Narrative Beverage Writing three times, the American Food Journalist Award for Beverage Writing, the North American Travel Journalist Association Gold Award, and has been nominated three times for a James Beard Award in Beverage Writing. Wow, Ray, this is incredible. I am honored to be here with you today. Give it up for Ray. A little bit, a little bit the Susan Lucci of, of, the, of the Beard Award. Oh, but, the, you know, the Susan Lucci. Well, Susan you'll Lucci. get one after yeah. this, probably but, for the book. Yeah, but, um, obviously, Ray's book brought us all here together. Uh, there is so much in this book that resonated with me personally uh, through my own journey. It's 600 pages. I bet it could be 6,000 pages because there are so <laughs> many incredible stories to tell. One of the things that really hit home with me was your theme about storytelling and the people, the place behind the bottle that matter. And with that, I would love to start with your story, your personal journey of how you got into wine. Yeah, so um, I didn't grow up with wine. Uh, It wasn't uh, wasn't a part of my... well, I didn't grow up drinking it as a child, strangely enough. Um, <laughs> that is strange. <laughs> but, but, you know, I, go figure. But um, I didn't grow up with it really in my family. I remember we would have wine on the table at, at Thanksgiving or at Christmas, and that was about it. My father drank um, – I grew up in Texas. My father drank beer and bourbon, more or less, um, I, which is not to make him come off as like a farmer in Texas. He was an English professor. Um, but, but nevertheless – Hence the writing. He, the, the one – the sole moment of excitement about an alcoholic beverage I remember as a child was – the day that Coors became available, like east of the Rockies, and he was very psyched. Um, it's like of Coors, this is so cool. Um, but I, what happened was, I went. Uh, I, I did not have any interest in wine through college. My sole memory of wine in college was lying on the floor at a party and someone squeezing wine into my mouth from a bag. Um, which it, a bag? You know, wine? Wait, hang on now. Let me well, it was a box, but you pull the, bo- you pull the bag it. out of the box, and, and then you, you know, and that, that uh, apparently is preparation for being a wine writer. Um, uh, but what happened was in grad school in Boston, I kind of got interested in wine um, my, toward the end of my graduate career there. My girlfriend was working at a high-end restaurant in, in Boston and, and then in Providence, and, and so she knew something about wine, and I started getting interested in it, and got a little more interested. I worked in a rare bookstore in D.C. for a while and kind of had a lot of spare time sitting at a table waiting 
waiting and waiting for customers, waiting for customers. And I would read about wine. And the, the thing that, that turned the switch for me or, or lit the light bulb or whatever metaphor you want to use, which it's, and it's true for a lot of people in the wine business, that there's a wine. There's like a moment with a wine that does it. And for me, it was a, a 1984 Diamond Creek Volcanic Hill Cabernet Sauvignon, which um, I had probably in 1990, I guess. And um, it was at a dinner with the, that f- former girlfriend and her father, and he uh, had been to the winery and bought the wine. And I remember being at this dinner at this restaurant called Restaurant Nora in D.C. And, um, and taking a sip or two of the wine, taking another sip and thinking, this is really good. And taking another few sips and being like, this wine is amazing. And, and I remember absolutely nothing of the dinner of talking to my girlfriend or her father. And I remember absolutely that wine and, the, and remember very clearly getting to the bottom of the glass and having that last sip left. And anybody who loves wine knows that feeling where you get to the end of the glass and there's one sip left and you're like, that's it. That's like, I, I've got to either drink it or not drink it or wait. And, and so probably the relationship disintegrated because I wasn't paying attention to either of them. Yeah, clearly. But, but, you only remember the wine. But I we do remember have... the wine. And yeah. then the, the next thing that happened was that, and that probably would have been it. I probably would have just been interested in wine and, and so on, except I got a writing fellowship out here at Stanford, and that is that slippery soap. It put me next to wine country. And, yeah, it's, it's a dangerous, it's dangerous situation. Um, I started going to wineries, as one does, going to Napa, tasting wine. I found out from some the people I was occasionally buying wine from on my like graduate student fourteen bucks a week budget. Um, I was buying wine at K and L, and one of the guys was like, "You know, you can work, you can volunteer for bottlings for little wineries, and they'll pay you in wine. And if if your budget's fourteen bucks a week, then that's kind of like, all right, well, that's cool. So I started doing that. That transformed into working harvest for two years as a seller rat and t- switching my teaching schedule around. Um, so I could work harvest in the fall and then teach the rest of the year. And then after that, I was like, I'm, I'm not going to be in academia. I'm going to be in wine one way or another. I did, had no idea if the writing and the wine would come together. But um, I, uh, I, it was just, I was, you know, it was very clear that I was taking a hard left turn into that world. And then, and then I ended up in New York um, and selling wine, of all, selling port. Uh, one of the more thankless tasks that there is in the wine business. There are st- I'm convinced there are still bottles of port that I sold to restaurants around 2000 that are still on the shelf where they landed when I sold them because nobody buys port these days, which is a terrible shame. Um, and if my former boss, Peter Scott, is in the audience, Peter, I'm, I'm sorry, I did my best. Um, <laughs> and, and, and I sold wine, and um, Josh Green at Wine and Spirits uh, read something of freelance piece I had written and got in touch with me about writing for him. And pretty soon that was a job offer. And I haven't looked back. Um, well, you've crafted quite the career for yourself. Um, obviously, that is enough to be celebrated. But then to go on and write such an incredible, <laughs> heavy. Uh, heavy, but really interesting, uh, interesting book. I promised my eight-year-old I would ask this question first. So... What inspired you to write a book this big, this heavy, and really this meaningful? Well, so I, I didn't actually set out to write a book that big. Um, <laughs> it, I, I set out to write a book, but I didn't expect to write a 700-page book. Um, I wanted to, I, you know, I've, I've been at Food & Wine now since, God, since 2005. Um, I, I thought about doing books over the years, but I knew I didn't want to do another sort of introduction to wine book. There are a lot of them. There are a lot of very good ones, some like... 
there didn't need to be another. I didn't really, really want to do something regional. And I gotten more and more interested in time over time in essentially in a couple of things in, in people who were working or farming in ways that, that were beneficial to the environment rather than detrimental to it. So anybody who was working sustainably, organically, regeneratively, biodynamically, all that. Um, I also knew, I also was, there was sort of a moment where, and if people are in the wine business, and I don't know how many people out in the audience are in the business or not in the business, but there's been a kind of a conflict between the world of natural wine and the world of um, traditional wine, I guess you'd say. And natural wine is the, you know, the deeply low intervention school of winemaking. But a lot of the producers I like in the conventional world of wine are also working in a very low intervention way with very little sulfur and organic, you know, farming and so on. And it's kind of like, well, to me, this barrier where the, these two schools are criticizing each other isn't really the wall. The wall or the problem to me is is the world of mass-produced industrial, you know, agrochemically farmed, 100,000-gallon tank, basically, you know, wine as a, as a beverage product versus wine that is made by people on land that they have an investment in who are often living on that land and are farming in ways that benefit the environment and are making wines that really express the place they're from and the, and the, and the personal vision of, of who's making them. And, and when all that kind of came together, I was like, okay, well, that seems like a book. Um, and then it got to be a really big book. <laughs> it, and it really could have been 8,000 pages because I, I, there are so many small wineries out there making really wonderful wines that well, I had to limit it. Not to cut you off, but that was what I think is so incredible. People don't really realize that it could have been 8,000 pages because it, there are that many people doing wines in this incredible way, uh, like you're saying. And a yeah. lot of times we're not made aware of those wines. And your book did a really great job of doing Thank you. that. Thank you. How yeah. did you narrow it down to only the people you put in here? Um, I, a couple of filters, um, because, and I, one, I mean, one, one filter was my editor who said, you know, no, you cannot do an 8,000 page book about wine. Um, that's not what we paid for and don't. Who could lift it? No, we can lift it and and we will sell no copies ever. So, but the short version, there's no one in that book that I haven't talked to personally, whether it was, whether visiting the winery or, or interviewing them in New York when they were through on a wine tour or. A sort of exception made for the pandemic because there are some Zoom interviews because some of my travel plans strangely were disrupted by the pandemic. Um, oh, yours were? Yeah, huh. I don't know. It it's the strangest so goddamn thing. Oh, okay. You know? Well, we can't yeah. relate. None of us. So, so go on. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so it's only people I've spoken with. It's it's primarily wines that are under a hundred dollars. Um, you know, there are some producers who make wines that are above that, but the bulk of the wines in the book. I wanted it to be a book full of wines that people could actually go out and buy. Um, and that, you know, for instance, Domain Ramaniconti works in all the ways that the book is about, is owned by two families who don't always get along, but it's owned by two families. But the, the least expensive wine they make is 2500 bucks a bottle. I, I don't know. That seems like maybe that's not the thing I need to write about. And additionally, thousands of pages have been written about Domain Ramaniconti. So why not write about some smaller producers that don't have thousands of pages written about them. And, and then, so those two things, um, and then, and then a certain degree, I, I wanted to cover the world, but so I couldn't, you know, if you want to cover the world, you can't do 200 profiles of Chianti producers because then you've got an 8,000 page book. So I had to kind of be a little ruthless and trim down and leave out some people that I loved um, 
And some, sometimes it was because the research I'd done, I mean, I pulled on some research from um, years past in food and wine, but some of it was too old. Um, uh, and a lot of people, you know, were too expensive. Left yeah. them out. And so I'd like to go back to this, uh, the category you started about why you started yeah. writing about this. If uh, it originally, obviously, but this idea of natural wine, organic wines, uh, regenerative viticulture, right. all these different areas that I think we all hear about. And I told you over the phone when we talked earlier this week, I've probably interviewed 10 different winemakers about the same topic and you always get a different answer. So I, I'm curious for you dedicated a whole book to it. Can you just like tell us what each of those things mean when we go get a wine right now? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, Thank for you. sure. That's simple. Um, uh, easiest way is buy the book. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I did. I did try and simplify. Or let's see how to put this. I tried to write explanations of those categories in a way that was clear and not overly technical, but was also accurate. And it's it's very complicated because different countries have different rules about all those things and different labeling rules for sure. And so, and then there's a question of organic, et cetera, viticulture versus winemaking. And so essentially to, to nutshell it very, very, very broadly, um, sustainability is a, an approach when, when it's followed, you know, uh, when it's not BS, um, <laughs> is, is, you know, is, is trying to keep the environment of the, of the vineyard sustainable. It's also, it also involves treating workers, you know, in a, in a manner that's not um, damaging that's, and then taking into account things like sustainability of the environment as a whole. So carbon reduction, um, using solar power, all that kind of thing. It, it is a, it applies to farming, but it looks out beyond the, the, the farming methods into other things as well. Organics is a form of agriculture that where you do not use it's essentially you solve problems in your vineyard, whether it's diseases or, or mold pressure or whatever, without systemic chemicals. Um, so you're not using the sort of agrochemicals like Roundup that you would normally use. You're using um, sulfur, you're using uh, copper sulfate and things like that, which are of course themselves chemicals, but they're at least naturally occurring. Um, biodynamics is interesting. Um, <laughs> so biodynamics is a form, uh, the easiest way to describe biodynamics is it's a philosophy of agriculture that looks at the, that the, vineyard of the farm, let's say, as an ecological whole. So not just the vines, but the vines, the, the bugs, the, the animals that live in the vineyard, the dirt, the microbiological life in the dirt are all one interconnected thing. And so you treat it with products or treatments or whatever that, that reinforce life in, in the entirety of that context. Now, biodynamics is also comes from some philosophical writings by, writings by Rudolf Steiner, a very unusual, somewhat weird um, Austrian theosophist um, from the uh, you know late 1800s, early 1900s, who um, also founded the Waldorf School system. Um, there are some aspects of biodynamics that kind of bring in the cosmic forces. I heard uh, of them talking about the moon and the uh, stars, yeah. and it can get a little. It can get a little, a little woo woo, as they say. Um, and 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 you know, if you bury a cow horn full of manure, um, and uh, I mean, so there are various biodynamic treatments that you use homeopathically in the vineyard. One, for instance, is you bury a cow horn full of manure for six months. You unearth it in the spring. You um, atomize the contents of the of the cow horn in, in um, water, and you spray it over the vineyard. Um, the 
Steiner felt that the pointed tip of the cow horn concentrated astral forces into the contents of the horn. A little bit weird. I didn't um, know we're going to get all in the yeah. weeds there with that. But That's the good. Hand, I didn't know about the horn. Yeah, yeah. the horn is great. But on the <laughs> other hand, there's there's something to it in that, yeah. you know, if you smell the manure that has been buried for six months, it doesn't smell like cow manure anymore. It smells like this very rich, earthy substance that um, has undergone some kind of transformation. And it's probably more microbiological than it is astral, but who knows. The, my favorite quote in the book about biodynamics is from Olivier Zindhumbrecht, who at Zindhumbrecht, appropriately, winery in Alsace, who is trained as a, I mean, he has a, he has a master's degree in, um, vitic, in, in uh, enology and viticulture. He has a master of wine. He is a deeply rational and very scientifically trained person who farms biodynamically. And his, what he did when he started working biodynamically was create two separate vineyard plots, one that was biodynamic, one that was not. He created different manure piles, some that were treated biodynamically, some that were not. And for instance, with the manure piles, he measured the microbiological life in the manure pile in the biodynamic and in the non-biodynamic. And you know, what he said was that the, the amount of life in the, in, the bio, my, in the biodynamically treated pile of manure was just massively larger than in the other. And what he said was, you know, I'm, I, I look at this scientifically, the fact that if I can measure a difference, but I can't explain it, that doesn't, that doesn't mean the difference isn't there. In fact, that's the nature of science is you try and figure out why there is something going on that you can't understand. So if, if, if I can measure that there's a difference, that's enough for me. I don't have to necessarily be able to explain it. And the history of, of humanity is, is trying to explain things we don't understand. And we don't understand everything yet. And I thought that was a really smart response to biodynamics and, and um, a number of very, very, very good vintners who are very smart work that way. Regenerative agriculture is kind of a combo platter of, of sustainability and the, and the biodynamics without the spiritual aspect. So treating the environment as a, as a whole working and at the same time working on things like carbon sequestration and, um, and, and also, treating your farm animals correctly, treating your workers with respect, having them have input into the, um, the way the vineyard is run. Um, and it's, you know, some people, the, the shorthand regenerative is kind of the new flavor on the block. Yeah. And some people get, you know, biodynamics without the woo woo. Um, but regardless, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a combo of both farming strategies and other things that you do that are beneficial to both the culture and the environment. And for instance, Tablas Creek in, Paso Robles was the first California and maybe the first vineyard in the world to be certified regenerative organic um, viticulture. And it's an interesting approach. Um, I mean, all of this, all of this stuff is trying to look at how to farm in a way that, you know, farming is man interacting with the environment. Farming is, is not the, I mean, nature on its own does not farm. Um, nature on its own does what it does. We we interact with nature when we farm things, but you you can interact in a way. I think I quote Wendell Berry in the book. Um, I actually have a short background information. My parents went to Stanford. My dad was there at the same time Wendell Berry was there. Um, if anybody knows Wendell Berry, wonderful essayist about nature, wonderful poet. I have a picture of myself sitting on Wendell Berry's knee when I was four. But he in one of his essays, he wrote about how there's a there's a you know there's a give and take between man and nature when it comes to agriculture, 
Um, ideally, it's a give and take. A lot of industrial agriculture is just a take. It's just we, we take what we want from nature. Uh, ideally, it should be kind of a, an interactive process. And all of these approaches are, to me, ways to work with nature to farm and create a crop as opposed to working despite nature. Um, you know, or working to control nature. Uh, well, and one of the things I loved in your book, you talked about that there's life in the soil and then there's yeah. soul in it. And when you use these products, you're really just crushing the life out of the soil. And we're not thinking of it as a living thing that is impacting the wine that we drink. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's um, I, I, Steve Mathiason, who's going to be pouring later on, we were having a conversation about this. And it's, we were, he was saying, you know, that one of the things about something like Roundup is that it's not that it kills the microbiological life in the soil, that it kills all the, you know, kills the cover crop. It kills everything on the surface that, that in fact, that contributes to the microbiological life. So it's like, instead of just, instead of killing all the bacteria in the soil, you starve them to death with it, which is, um, which is an interesting and, and kind of bleak assessment, but true. Um, one of the big topics in wine right now is, is a, a kind of an understanding that terroir, this expression of place, through the nature of wine, through the way a wine tastes and where you get it, you don't really get terroir unless you have living soil. If you've got dead soil, you don't really have terroir expression in the same way. And a lot of these approaches to, to farming are all about keeping your soil alive and keeping that microbiological life going. And, you know, I think it's interesting, and I'll, obviously you think it's important because you wrote a whole book about it. And when we think <laughs> about what we eat, we often say we are what we eat, and now yeah. we are what we drink. Do you feel the industry is moving along these lines where this is um, increasingly more important to them as it is with food? And, and Yeah, I think, you know, the industry moves, I mean, a couple of things. One, consumers are more interested in it, and, and wine is something that people sell. And so if consumers are interested in it, that will kind of push that along. Um, I think, you know, I, as I just talking to people out there who drink wine, it definitely skews younger, the, you know, younger consumers are more concerned about how was this grown? How was it made? And how am I'm putting it in my body? What does that mean? Wine trends on that kind of character tend to, tend to trail after food trends. So there's been a lot of interest in uh, over quite a few years now about how, you know, the food we're putting in our body, and how it was grown and so on. And, and, but it's been kind of like, I think as, as one of the winemakers in the book says, you know, it's like people go to Whole Foods and they buy the organic produce and they make very clear, you know, very sure that they're buying, you know, foods that aren't going to, you know, be covered in pesticides. And they get to the wine aisle and they're like, eh, what the hell? And grab a bottle of wine. Um, and, they can say it, right? And yeah. It's kind of like, okay, whatever. Okay, I don't know. 50 good. bucks sounds like a good deal. Um, and so I think that's changing a little bit, which is, which is interesting. And it's one reason why I did the book now i think it's because of because of interest in it you know um that's that's part of it at least there was a second part to that question i've completely well, yeah. spaced well, I, well <laughs> on to the next there's so much to get to uh, yeah. one of the things i thought was really incredible too is that not only are we talking about wines that are made in this art you know art from artisanal producers in an uh, eco-friendly way but there's value in the wine so you're not finding you know 500 hundred dollar bottles in here you yeah. really most yeah. of them are under a hundred dollars and talk about that the quality for value well most are, most are most of them are in the sort of 20 to 40 buck zone. And I, you know, I said somewhere in the book that you can live your entire life drinking wine under a hundred dollars and have an absolutely extraordinary life of drinking wine. You, you know, you won't miss the fact that you didn't drink a $500, you know, Corton Charlemagne or whatever. Um, and 
so I didn't, you know, I kind of wanted the book, wines in the book to be accessible and, and I didn't think there was any dilution of quality by looking at, at wines you could afford. Um, I mean, most of what I do for food and wine is wines that are in the affordable zone. And, um, and that's not, not uh, realistically, it's hard to make $5 wines. If you're doing a lot of handwork in the vineyard, it's not, you know, it's, 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 it's tricky. You know, that's, that's sort of where you get into economy of scale and, you know, your, your average five buck wine is not, is not going to be farmed by hand organically. Um, but, but you do, and, and they're not in the, in the book, but, you know, um, Bonterra, for instance, farms, I don't know, a thousand acres or something organically. And you can do, and their wines are not terribly expensive at all. So you can do it at scale. Um, but I really wanted, I wanted the wines to be findable and affordable. I mean, the nature of the way wine is sold in the U S is that not every wine will be in every store. I mean, unless, unless you're, well, take your pick of mass produced wines, but, um, it takes a little hunting someday. If our wine laws change, then, you know, I, wine is the only product I can think of that Amazon like tried to get into and then called it quits. <laughs> they were like, okay, this is just way too much they, trouble. They bought you one know. medical, but yeah. they couldn't deal they with couldn't the wine. Deal with wine. You know, right? it, exactly. They were defeated by wine. And so one time Jeff Bezos was like, nope, I'm you know, good. out, <laughs> we're done. And well, well I, just, I love in the book at the end, you, you look at <coughs> one of the parts, it was towards the end where you say, do you want to know how you can get these wines? Because most of them you're not going to find. Go yeah. to your local wine store, be an advocate for what you want, and hopefully you'll see it. Yeah, I mean, it's, I, I, I have said for years and years and years, and I completely believe it, that the best way to, to buy wine is to find a store with, that's, you know, that's run by people who love wine, who will talk to you about what you like and... Um, that's, I mean, that was my experience at K&L years ago when I was getting into wine. They, you know, it, I didn't have a huge amount of money to spend that they would take time and, and ask me what I'd had before and suggest things. And it, it was, you know, you, you may pay a buck more than you do at Kroger or whatever, but you get so much information out of it that it's worth it. And it, it's, uh, you know, the, the, the independent wine stores of the world are, are a great, great boon to anyone who loves wine yeah and also touching on the lesser known wine regions which i know you do uh, obviously yeah. real estate is it, it, it prices of wine are reflective of how much the land costs so if you can you know shine the spotlight on some of these lesser known regions yeah and there's other, i mean there's also tricks you know you can use winesearcher.com to to if anybody doesn't know winesearcher.com handy thing you put type in the name of wine your zip code it'll tell you who sells it near you ideally one trick I've learned from researching for food and wine is you type the name of a wine, you type 750 ml, which is the size of a bottle. This is in Google. Type the name of the wine, type 750 ml, and then type the area code, 917 or 212 or 415. That often pulls up stores that have that wine. Is uh, anybody taking notes on this, yeah, by this the way? My, that's my secret. I've given you my secret good tip. <laughs> food and wine researching how to find wine um, information. Right, <laughs> absolutely. And still keeping on the line of costs of wine, we're thinking about inflation and how much things cost. Uh, so much more. The wine yeah. category has really skyrocketed in that in a post 2020 world. And there's a bunch of reasons that go into it. And I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah. So uh, prices of wine have skyrocketed in some ways. Um, the, the prestige and kind of benchmark regions of the world, there's no question that the prices have gone up. I mean, I think if you look at tonnage prices, the average Napa Valley Cabernet is around 80 bucks now or 85 bucks, something like that. Um, if you look at Burgundy, I mean, even a village Burgundy from a from a negociant producer like like Jadot or Jeffrey Chambertin will be seventy five, eighty dollars. That's 
that's not that's a lot of money for a, a baseline wine. Um, at the same time, there's so much more choice out there than there used to be, and there are actually so many really good values that it's a it's a little bit of a weird situation where the really well-known and famous wines have shot up a lot, um, particularly like like reference point super superstar producers. You know whether it's Domaine du Jacques in Burgundy or you know top level Napa Cabernet or it's Chateau Reyes and, and Chateau Neuf. Those wines have gone through the roof in terms of prices. At the same time, like just to pick a random wine, you know, the Pais Savage from, from Southern Chile that um, Jay Bouchon makes that's it's in the book, which is made from, you know, 120 year old Pais, which is, which is um, uh, local vine to, to Southern Chile mission in here in California, which it was, was planted randomly. And, and the vines now climb up the trees next to this river and he harvests them, uh, you know, harvest, they harvest them off the trees. That wine's 19 or 20 bucks a bottle, and it's really cool. So uh, while a lot of wines have shot up in price, there's all this great stuff out there that, that really hasn't and is findable with some searching and, and is, I think, super great. Um, yeah. That technical wine term, super great. Super great, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, and one of the things that I really struck me about the book, and it's not just a wine guide, it really is a wine story guide. And um, yeah. that is what I'd like to de- uh, dig into a little bit. Uh, we have you know, half the time left dedicated to stories and, of course, your questions. But when, there's some of the things that I read that really struck with me, uh, some quotes in the book when you're talking about when you're drinking a bottle of wine, you're remembering the smells of the place that you're at, the person you're sitting across the table from, uh, the moment that it's happening. You're thinking about uh, the place to which you're at and the vineyards, the land, the soil, if you're lucky enough to to, to um, drink and taste with the winemakers like you are. But wine really is a combination of their story and your story yeah, and how it absolutely. intersects. I mean, it's it's wine is incredibly contextual. Our, our experience of wine isn't really contextual, so, which is one reason why I kind of talk in the book about why I don't, I'm not a giant fan of the numerical scoring system. And that sort of 92 points taste like asphalt and blueberries. It's like, it's, it's only useful up to a certain point. And you're kind of like, okay, right, 92 points and tastes like blueberries. And I don't know, I guess it tastes like blueberries. Um, but, you know, we, when we, when you taste something, you, you, you taste it in a kind of a chemical level, you know, you're, you, you taste it in it, you're, neurons in your tongue or your sensors in your tongue pick up and then your olfactory sense pick up information and send it to your brain it says tastes like tastes like x um at the same time this is all filtered by your brain and so we've all had that experience you know where you you're i mean this is the classic example i use is you you know you are on the beach in provence and you're with your you know soon to be you know or you're just married you're with your your new newly wed spouse whatever your spouse maybe literally had my uh, honeymoon on, in provence so yeah so you go and, and you're like on the beach in provence the and, and you have wine, this glass right? of rosé and you know you're 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 drinking it and you go back to the hotel room you know you have another glass of rosé and then you're newlyweds you do what you do in the hotel room as newlyweds and you <laughs> Have another glass of rosé, and it's the best rosé you've ever had in your life. It's it will, I, I test. It fantastic. is literally the best. <laughs> yeah, and then, and this is not you, but then, no, you know, ten years later, you're driving down the Jersey Turnpike, and um, you, you know, you're on your way to your divorce lawyer, and you, <laughs> and you, you stop in at TGI Fridays, and you have the same rosé, and you're like, this tastes like dust and ashes. This is fucking horrible wine, um, and and that's 
it's the same wine. You are different. Um, and in a less extreme way, everybody's had this experience where you're on vacation in Europe or whatever, and you have a, you know, a, a Chianti or something and you come home and you finally, you find it in the store six months later and you, and you sip it at home and you're like, this is the same wine I have. This is just not that exciting. It's kind of bleh. And it, it is the same wine. Okay. <laughs> it's you are different. And so that contextual stuff matters a lot. And part of the point of the book is that, yes, your own experience is part of the context, but the, but I think also the stories in the book that, or the story, um, who made a wine, why they made it, how they made it informs how you taste a wine. And so for instance, and I, I pulled this bottle from, from the tasting we're going to have later. So there's one we're one bottle short for the tasting, but you know, this is, this is a Hirsch vineyard Pinot Noir. And so, you know, you can taste it, you can basically taste it and say, well, that's wine, definitely wine. And it tastes, oh, well, kind of, hang on now. I yeah. don't, don't leave me yeah. out. It tastes, tastes like, like wine. wine. Tastes, you know, it's kind of, kind of taste, you know, tasty. And then tasty wine. Yeah. Love and then it. you can say, you know, well, uh, then you can say, get a little more information, say it's Pinot Noir. It's from the Sonoma coast of California. It's from the far Sonoma coast. Basically go a little farther. You fall off a cliff and into the Pacific. And so it's, very cool climate, a lot of wind off the Pacific. It's not a ripe style of wine. It's high acid. And you taste it knowing that. And it changes your experience a little because you know why it tastes the way it does. And then if I tell you that David Hirsch, like, was a, basically in the, in the late 60s, early 70s, was kind of that, let's get back to the land and get the hell out of the rat race, went, found land in Sonoma that was an old sheep station zero, no power, no water, no nothing. He was like, I'm just going to like hide here away from civilization, which is crumbling, obviously. Anyway, um, some point he was walking with a friend through his land and the friend was a winemaker. And the guy said, this could be really great Pinot Noir land. And David Hirsch was like, all right. Um, and he, he liked wine, but he hadn't any plans to plant vines. And he, so he planted Pinot Noir and brought in and built this place, you know, in the middle of, I mean, I don't know if anybody's been to Hirsch. It's in the middle of nowhere on the Sonoma coast. It's very hard to get to. And created this vineyard that is one of the great Pinot Noir vineyards in California. And then about seven or six or seven years ago, I guess, you know, he was in a very unfortunate tractor accident and nearly died and has kept farming, even though he's, he's, you know, in a wheelchair at this point because of this tractor accident and has this kind of indomitable will and, is going to keep farming this place no matter what, despite everything that's happened. And then you taste the wine and, and that changes your apprehension of that wine to me, that knowing, knowing that much about it, you know, you can't then not know that when you taste the wine and it deepens the experience and not every wine has to be special all the time. You know, as chef said to me at one point, like, look, sometimes rice is just rice. Okay, we can, we can stop like completely freaking out about the rice, but in the right moment, and if you want to experience a wine, you know, kind of fully, all that information really, really does kind of change your, your experience of it. And it, it doesn't change the flavor, but, it, but flavor is just a part of what goes on with wine. And so what I want to do with the book was tell all these stories of all these people. I mean, um, Etienne Gigal of Gigal um, in the Rhone, which is a very well-known brand, you know, he was thrown out. Of, basically his mother said to him, and this was when he was eight and it was in France between the two world wars. And he was 
terrible, terrible poverty in France at the time. I mean, the, you know, after World War I, though they supposedly won, the, the economy was destroyed. Um, his mother said, basically, we don't have enough, you know, the father was gone, dead. We don't have enough money to feed the family. You're the smartest of my three kids. So you need to go out and make your way in the world. And he's eight. So he goes, he gets a job assisting a shepherd. He like is working in the snow with no shoes. He then eventually ends up harvesting fruit in, um, in the, in the Rhone. He was harvesting apricots, I think. And, and one day he, and his brother was there too at that point. And one day he looks up and there's a, this vineyard, La Moulin, which is, which is up in the hills in the, in Hermita, in Cote Roti rather. And he's like, Asked his brother, "What's the deal?" And his brother's like, "Oh, those are vines. Terrible, like disastrous business. Don't go into it. You know, you don't want it to have anything to do with grapevines. Keep harvesting apricots." And he's like, "Someday I'm going to buy that vineyard." And so he gets a job picking grapes. He eventually ends up. I, I'm pretty sure it was Della Frere, but he ends up being the director of of a major Rhone winery. World War II happens. After World War II, he starts Gigal. He buys La Moulin, this vineyard he saw when he was 12. Um, it it makes one of the greatest coat rotis in the world. And it's an extraordinary story. It's, I mean, it's classic rags to riches, but it's also from tremendous. I mean, imagine being thrown out at eight and like your, your mother's like, you're, you're the only one who's got a brain. You got to go do something. And he survived this and, and created a, a, a extremely, you know, accessible across the world wine company. Again, it's like knowing that and tasting the wine, it really changes your experience of the wine. And so those are the stories that I wanted to get to in the book. I wanted to get, you know, I didn't really care so much about eight grams of titratable acidity and that it was in oak barrels for 36 months. I really wanted to get who the person was and and why they're making wine and why they're making wine the way they do. And there are 290 stories like that in the book. Not all of them quite that dramatic, but you know, that's, that was what the ambition was. And then I had to actually had to cut 30,000 words because the publisher was like, um, yeah, we need to keep the book 50 bucks or under or no one's going to buy it. So it's like, really crap. So I've got, I've got a bunch of other stories that are just like, like on a computer at the moment. I don't Well, don't worry. We'll have time. Well, yeah. you'll give us two more that didn't make <laughs> yeah. the book. Um, yeah. what I think is so interesting for you, you were able to, as a a critic of wine as someone who tastes wine, writes about wine for half your career, you're, be, you're able to sit and have these experiences and these stories and the average wine consumer isn't able to, but we're in a world now where I believe um, the story matters more and they can search out and find them, whether it be online, obviously in your book in these ways. And yeah. I feel like, do you think that the average consumer cares about the stories as much as they care about say top scores and tasting notes? No, I don't. I mean, I, you know, it's a funny thing. I, I, I would like them to care as much. Um, I, you know, I'm doing my, my corrective action so much as I can. Um, there's a reason scores succeed and that's because the, the way wine, the, you know, there's 36,000, 40,000 different SKUs of wine in the U S maybe even more than that at this point, everybody knows the experience. You walk into BevMo or total wine or whatever, and there's a wall of 400 Chardonnays and, and they, you know, I mean, I, the analogy I, I make into the, in the book is, is to chicken soup. It's like if you walked into a grocery store and there were 400 different kinds of chicken soup and they ranged in price from like a buck a can to 70 bucks a can, and they were all from different companies 
And some of them were like single chicken chicken soups, and some of them were chicken soups from specific chickens that were raised in a certain area. And some of them had little, you know, and some of them were had little descriptions on the back about how this this chicken soup has like notes of this and notes of that. Weirdly, and none of them said it tasted like chicken because no wine ever description ever says it tastes like grapes, you know. And you would you would look at that in a store and you would walk out and you would say, "This is insane! I'm never buying chicken soup again. I'm out," you know. And that's walking in and looking at a wall of Chardonnay to some degree. And that's why scores work because it's very hard for people, particularly who are who are regular just regular average average buyers who want a, gla- a bottle of wine. To, to sort all this out. And scores are a very simple way of sorting out and saying, well, you should buy this one because it got 92 points and cost $27 rather than this one because it didn't. Um, the problem for me is that it applies that, that it's kind of a false objectivity. It's like the, it isn't really 92 points. It's someone's opinion that it's 92 points. What can you do? Um, I just think it's more fun to, to know the stories and know the people. And, and on a lot of wines, there's no story. A lot of wines, the story is a large, you know, corporation decided it needed a $7 Chardonnay and they, they research, they did a consumer marketing research on seven different brand names and they landed on the one that, you know, is like appropriate for the kind of target audience they want. And they, you know, enzymatically modified the fermentations and keeps, you know, so that it's, and use tea bags full of oak chips to give it oak flavor and, and and it's fine. It's like, I mean, you know, use the analogy. It's like a Taco Bell taco. It's like a McDonald's hamburger. It's like a can of Coke. Tastes perfectly fine and totally fine if you want to drink it. I mean, it's, it's like if I am mowing the lawn in Houston where I grew up in August and it's 105 degrees and someone comes by, it's like, do you want a Budweiser? I'll be like, yes, I would like a cold Budweiser. Thank you. I don't care if it's a mass-produced product. I, I would like it. So there's no reason, you know, you can you can... Drink anything you like, but I do think you can get more out of wine if you really want to. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I, what I think is also interesting in the book that you do touch on in some of these stories, some of these regions that people don't really think about. I mean, you had Walla yeah. Walla in there, you had Umbria, yeah, obviously it's different regions and, and your experience going into these places and, and shining a spotlight on some of these smaller regions, yeah. regions people just don't know as well. I, I think that, I mean, we're... In that context, we're kind of in a golden age of wine because you can go, you can buy wine from everywhere right now. Like I can walk down the street to a wine store here and I can find Slovenian white wines probably. Um, and what's cool is there's a lot of really great wine being made all over the world in, in all kinds of regions and by really ambitious people who are really passionate about what they do. And that's, that's really wonderful. And, and I, you know, we're right, you know, in the in the neighborhood of Napa Valley and Sonoma, which are extraordinary wine regions, and I love their wines. But I also think the wines of southern Chile can be fascinating. I think, you know, um, you know, uh, I've written about Pinot Noir from from the, the southern part of Argentina, from Patagonia, which is which is great. There's you know, um, tremendous wine being made in Lebanon right now. You know, um, and and it's a uh, there's great wine in Georgia, the country of. There's not so much great wine in the state of Georgia, but um, it's a little hot. There are some parameters, you know, some baseline parameters about wine. It's, uh, you know, my hometown, Houston, not good for wine. Um, way too hot this summer and way too wet. It's good for rotting grapes on the vine. Um, well, it's funny. My mom messages me, texts me a couple of weeks ago. She's like, did you know they made wine in Georgia? And I was like, 
mom, what? She's like, I'm watching 60 minutes. So, you know, yeah. she, she, she discovered this and, you know, I'm like, she's talking to me. I'm going, yes, mom. I knew they made wine in Georgia. Uh, do you, I have a bottle at home. Would you like to taste it? But that got me thinking, of course, what, one of the things I also love about wine, and I know it's, it's in your book within the context of story is really the history, how it really, yeah. when you think about wine, it really goes along with the history of society, of humanity, with all of us. It's been there since the beginning and it tells this story a moment of time uh, in, in all kinds of different ways. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, I, I got lucky in finding wine as a topic because it, it, I mean, one, it's hedonistically pleasurable. It's great fun drinking wine. I, it, you know, it tastes good, has alcohol in it. Um, but um, it's, it's interesting from an economic point of view. It's interesting from an agricultural point of view. It's interesting from a social point of view. It's interesting in the history of religion. It's culturally interesting going back thousands and thousands of years. It's a, it's a kind of inexhaustible topic, which is pretty cool. And, you know, I, at some point, it, 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 not when I was directly researching the book, but I did do a story about Georgia um, for food and wine. And the oldest, the, the archaeological site that has the oldest evidence of winemaking is in Georgia outside Tbilisi. And I went there and it looks like most archaeological sites. It looks like a pit they dug in the ground. You know, it's just only square and they've got some, you know, strings, you know, kind of in certain places they can keep track of what they're digging up. But it's it's kind of wild to stand there at this site and and think that 8000 years ago, someone right there was was making wine in a, you know, quivery, you know, urn, basically, which is how traditional wine is still made in Georgia today. And, you know, it is this this extraordinary history. And if you're. You know, I, I'm obsessed with wine. It it was really kind of a fascinating moment, you know, and it and it was uh, remarkable to think that you know uh, that long ago someone was standing right there making making wine. Then I'm you know, then going off that night to drink wine in Tbilisi and made in the same way that they were making wine back then. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it's absolutely, it's incredible. And, um, you know, one of the things I do love about wine, and I think we all do too, you say in the book, it's not about getting buzzed. It's really about being together with people. Yeah. I mean, it, it's about connecting, how we communally come. We gather around the table. Often we have a bottle of wine. We have food. It, it is a way that connects us. And it also, for me, it connected me to the world. I didn't know about the world until I started traveling in the wine industry, learning about different cultures and you start yeah. to understand them and how much more alike we are than we are different in a lot of ways. Yeah, it does bind people that way. And it does, it does bring together a lot of different cultures that would otherwise not, you know, um, not, not necessarily connect. Um, and it's, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty remarkable that in that context. I mean, I, you know, there, there's some very funny moments, the you know, I, I was talking about Lebanon, Fawzi Issa, who is the, the um, winemaker and owner of Domaine de Tourelle in Lebanon, was one of the, the Lebanese winemakers I talked to were always like, okay, enough with the civil war, it ended a long time ago. Can we just talk about our wines? Um, they, you know, they're like, because this is what the question they get all the time. But he was in Norway um, selling his wine shortly after the big explosion that, that it hit Beirut. And, um, his Norwegian importer was like, I just don't know how you keep making wine in Lebanon. It's so difficult. And Fauzi was like, you live in Norway. It's pitch black six months out of the year and cold as hell. And it's dark and wet. And I live in this place with sun 360 days a year, gorgeous fruit and wonderful wine. 
I don't understand how you live your life. <laughs> so, you know, it was kind of, there's some wonderful, like, connections between people in that context. Absolutely. Cool. And we're going to get to the uh, questions from yep. the audience in a minute. But one story that didn't make the book that you right. want to share with us before we get to the audience. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Some of, there's so many stories that didn't make the book. Um, you know, I think uh, that's, a, that's an interesting one. Um, not to think on that. Uh, oh, it's, it's, okay. Know, I mean, uh, the one story that did make the book that you want to, that you want to share. Oh, well, let's see. Um, that, that Fausiasa story is a good one. I, I think, you know, uh, there's a story, there's a, there's a Georgian winemaker who said to me, you know, Georgia's had a complicated history of being part of the USSR and being over, overrun by the Soviets and overrun by everybody over time. And, you know, he, the, the, there's a monastery called Shad Nevada and there's a, um, the winemakers are monks and, um, one of the brother Marcus who's the, the head winemaker, um, said to me at one point, I was, I was talking with him about the wine and it, and it was like, um, you know, he had learned about wine from someone who was then basically killed by the KGB. Um, and in the time when, when, when the Soviets were in charge of Georgia and, and this is quite a bit later now, but I asked him something and this is a little bit unrelated to that, but I asked him, you know, what do you think about when, like, when you think about someone in in Denver drinking your wine that was made here in, you know, in this monastery in Georgia? And he said, and this comes from someone who's very deeply religious, obviously, but he said, you know, um, well, I mean, we we make our wine because of our belief in God, and um, God is in all of us, so it's not really that far from Denver to Georgia. And I thought, well, that's pretty cool. There's the connection. Again. <laughs> you know, that's are. a connection. Yeah. That's that's kind of astonishing. And uh, yeah, so that was a, that was one of those moments where you're like, this is such an amazing business to be in. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, we have a lot of questions that I'm okay. going to try to get uh, to them. This one comes uh, from online. It says, what is the biggest challenge facing the wine industry today? Well, I think, I mean, a huge, cha- I mean, a couple of challenges. One is clearly climate stuff. Um, climate change, climate shifts, uh, you know, this, that's a constant, that was a constant theme in, in talking to winemakers in this book, not just warming trends, which are, which are, you know, global warming, whatever, but the fact that as climate changes happen, it disrupts weather patterns. And I think the best, one of the best quotes in the book is from Philippe Wittmann at, at Wittmann, uh, Weingut Wittmann in Germany. And he said, you know, it used to be we had one year out of 10 that was just completely weird and unpredictable and the weather was strange. Now we have nine years out of 10 where the weather's unpredictable and strange. And that was echoed by a lot of winemakers. So whether it's unseasonal hail or frosts, whether it's fires, obviously, whether it's, you know, um, crazy winds or super intense heat spikes, there's a lot of bizarre climate stuff happening that, that, with any agricultural product, but particularly one that is so precisely farmed and, and mm-hmm. to make into wine. And that is a giant issue, I think. Well, and it's an issue that they're tackling and working. They're not, they don't have their yeah. head in the ground about, I mean, we've, they've no, been talking about coming up with solutions for, you know, the past 15 years since I've only been doing it 15 years. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have no, the, I mean, wine, yeah. winemakers are deeply you know, conscious of it. talking about it. Yeah. You know, it, I mean, as you know, another one said, you know, you can't yell at the sky. You have to just figure right. out what to do. Um, but 
that's that's a big that's certainly that, one that, big issue. That's a big that's a big issue. Okay, yeah. so next one coming from someone in the audience. If you could make one under the radar wine or wine region instantly famous, which one would it be and why? Oh, that's, that's pretty, you're making it an influencer on Instagram. If I could make a wine region instantly, instantly right now, um, huh? I would probably. It's hard to say what, like, which wine regions aren't famous, I guess, is, is, is one question. But I would, like, if I could make it even more famous, I would say Gredos in Spain, which is west of, um, which is making some of the greatest Grenache on the planet. And it was a very beaten down region for a long, long time. And it's known in the business, but not really in the rest of, outside the business that much. They deserve some fame, I think. And know, why? Because the wines are so gorgeous. There you go. All right. Uh, For both Ray and Monique, what is your, uh, sorry, I can't read the writing. Something, uh, what is your, I'm going to think it says, what is your favorite varietal of choice? Not just because of the season or food related, just your go-to. I'll let you go first. Well, champagne. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Always a reason to open up a bottle of uh, sparkling wine in my best days and my worst. How's yours? Um, you know, it's. It, I think this is one of those questions that changes every single day, or rather, the question stays the same. The answer changes. Every sure, of day. course. But having just mentioned Grenache, I'm, I am in a Grenache moment at the moment. A Grenache moment at the moment. Whatever. Um, there's something about that grape where it can make like incredibly intense, powerful wines like Chateau Neuf de Pop, and make these gorgeous, transparent, silky, lightweight wines. Um, I don't know if any people know Tribute to Grace here in California. Really beautiful wines, um, uh, Angel Osborne's in the book, that that kind of style of Grenache at the same time. So it's this chameleon-like grape that just does, I, I'm just fascinated with. Well, and I did a trip, uh, a Grenache, Grenache trip just a year ago. And I, it was one of yeah. these things where until you're in the place with the people, you don't always fully appreciate uh, the, the grape in and of itself. So I, I, yes to Grenache, but when I'm not drinking sparkling wine. Right. Well, I'm, I'm, seven. I have a weakness for champagne too. Got <laughs> yeah, it, got okay. It. Um. okay. Hi, Ray. <laughs> have you ever considered scores in addition to your hundred points storytelling? Yes, <laughs> no, just curious. Why not? I've, I've actually, absolutely. I mean, I've been asked multiple times. At, it's come up with food and wine a lot. And it's usually in the context of like, well, we could make more money if you guys did scores. Um, and, and I've always resisted it. Um, I, when I worked for Wine and Spirits, I did score wines because Wine and Spirits does that. Um, and, I, and I internally kind of score wines for myself. You know, I have a kind of rating system when I taste that um, is really more of a five-point kind of little bell curve of fine, eh, you know, um, <laughs> and whoa, you know, that's kind of the, the scoring system I use. Um, but I don't know. I've gotten away from it, and I, 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 I'm just disinclined. I, 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 I totally get why scores work, but I, I do think they're, they're a little reductive. Um, well, and I almost think the whole book is dedicated to the why <laughs> you don't it want is. to do it. it. So read yeah. the book and you'll know the why yeah. uh, by I mean, the book. It's like, what's the score of what, like, so does your score go up if you farm organically? I mean, do you get more points, five more points? I don't know. It doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. Okay. This is a, an online question. What shift or trend do you anticipate for the wine industry in 2024? Hmm. Um, I think in, in this coming year, I, it's a little hard to say. I think ongoing, like commercially, there's just a lot of pressure from different, um, 
worlds right now on wine. There's like there's kind of growing cannabis product drinks, etc., which are going to cut into the wine market. Um, there's the you know there's uh, been massive overproduction and a shrinking drinking rate in Europe in terms of wines. So I think it's a little tricky economically for wine right now. I think I'd like to think that 2024 will be positive. Um, I've, I've got a baseline po- optimistic attitude about wine in that there's a lot of sort of, oh, the millennials aren't going to drink wine. And then now it's Gen Z isn't going to drink wine. And, and it's truth, no one drank wine when I was in my twenties, um, you know, except from a bag on a floor. Um, but you know, wine's been around for 8,000 years. I don't see it disappearing. Uh, it, it seems unlikely it'll just be wiped out overnight by cannabis drinks. Um, or White Claw. So, or what White you, Claw. I mean, White Claw did not succeed in wiping out wine. It's, it's still here. I, this isn't the question, but just adding to it, what are your thoughts on sort of the low alcohol, no alcohol category? Well, that's a big thing. I, I, you know, I, I think there's two things going on. One is that I think... There's definitely a lot of people who are interested in low alcohol and in, in a drink, non-alcoholic drinks, and I get, and there's definitely a growing market for them and a massive number of new products. I get pitched constantly on them. There's, there's a somewhat a neo-prohibitionist movement, and it's it's kind of sort of under the aegis of health. Um, at the same time, I think a lot of people, particularly younger people, are kind of like, well, maybe I don't want to get all as messed up as I could, which I think is maybe a good thing. I, you know, I I think, you know, moderation, moderation in all things. Um, wine is not that alcoholic. If you drink moderate amounts of it, you won't end up on the floor, you know, wondering where you were the next day. And you mentioned uh, backstage uh, that it is the anniversary of the repeal of Prohibition. Oh, yes, it is the anniversary so that... <laughs> today of the repeal of Prohibition. So, you, you, know. have, you picked a wonderful day Cheers to, to, that. to drink uh, wine. Okay, yeah. another question. Does the quality or shape of the glassware make a difference in the taste of the wine? It makes a, it makes a difference in the aromatics of the wine, for sure. Um, if you have a, a, a crappy glass that, 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 that doesn't have a worthwhile shape... It will change the way the wine smells, and that will change the way the wine tastes because so much of what we think of as taste is is, is olfactory. Um, everybody knows this. If you have a cold, you can't taste anything. That's because you can't smell anything. Um, our tongue just does sweet, sour, bitter, salt, and umami, um, which is savoriness. Um, that said, you can go over the top with the glassware thing. You do not need a single glass for every different variety unless you have infinite cupboard space and are bored and need to spend your money on something. Um, the the thing I that is underrated and I do think is true is that nice glassware feels better. It 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 is better. It feels better holding it, and it feels better against your lips to have that thin rim as opposed to a big chunky glass. And is it a luxury? Sure, but it's if you've got a nice bottle of wine, why not have a nice glass? I mean, it seems fair. On the other hand, I've I've had you know really hyper expensive burgundy out of paper cups before. Um, you know, I could be having a really bad Wednesday and I pull a poor bottle of sparkling into my late mother-in-law's Baccarat crystal coops and I'm just having the best day yep. ever. I feel yep. so glamorous. And so, you know, the, having this uh, meaningful, beautiful experience enhances. Yeah. It. It's it again, goes back to that. Like not everything has to be special all the time and right. everything can be special in different ways completely. Okay. I'm going to try to read this the best I can. I have a slight allergy to wine and congested and sneezy uh, the next days. Organic wines don't seem to have that reaction. Can you say why would biodynamic wines be similar? 
how do I look for organic or nearly organic wines? Um, okay, so there's a, there's a lot of talk about this. Um, and there's a couple of possibilities for the sneezy thing. One is One question is whether it's only red wines or whether it's all wines that do it to you. Um, if it's red wines, it's probably caused by compounds that are in the skins of the grapes. The thought initially was that it was biogenic amines, which are naturally occurring, things like histamine and tyramine. Histamine, of course, if you take antihistamines, that clears you up. Histamine, which naturally occurs in red wines, is clogs, if you have a reaction, clogs you up. Now, as of like two weeks ago, there's thoughts that scientific study that showed it might be a compound called quercetin, Q-U-E-R-C-E-T-I-N, um, which is, again, naturally occurring in red wines. On the other hand, if it's both white and red, then it's not those compounds, and it could be a minor sulfite reaction, though most people don't have... A lot of people think they have sulfite reactions to wines. Most people don't have sulfite reactions to wines. And if you want to know if you're going to have a sulfite reaction to something, like have a dried apricot. That'll, that'll do you in right there. Why um, do you think most people think that they have? I think because sulfites are, are uh, you know, one, there's kind of a, there are red wine headaches for sure. People do get red wine headaches. The, this is the quercetin thing I was talking about. Sulfites have often gotten the blame um, one, because they're labeled on the bottle as containing sulfites. Two, because some people, most, mostly people with asthma, do have sulfite reactions. Typically, if you have a sulfite reaction, it closes up your, your passages and you can't breathe very well rather than give you a headache. Um, the, it's, it's, it kind of has become a thing to say you have a sulfite issue. Um, you probably have a different issue if you're getting headaches from wine. Um, five you, bottles, five you know, glasses. If, if you're asthmatic and, and yeah. wine makes you, you know, have trouble breathing, then by all means, you, you have, probably have a sulfite concern. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are lots of products like frozen potatoes and um, dried apricots, for instance, that tend to have much more sulfites because they work as antioxidants. And additionally, uh, if you have a sulfite problem, you'll probably get a reaction from white wine more than red because there tends to be slightly higher sulfites in white wine because it, it, I mean, one thing sulfite does is keep things from turning brown. That was a very long not answer. So, um, I, but whoever is, answer, whoever's out the there with the, with the who gets the reaction, you know, talk to me later and we can yeah, try to figure out what, the what wines are doing the deal. Maybe I, you're just allergic to Pinot Noir. I don't know. Who knows? <laughs> uh, I can't believe we're almost out of time. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you wanted to touch on? I don't think so. I think we covered a lot of ground. I mean, um, I, uh, I don't think there's any specific subject really. I mean, we talked about kind of most of what I got into in the book. Um, I, I, I did want to say, you know, wine is really fun. Like wine is, wine is a blast to drink and it's fun to learn about. It's not, you know, it's, it's not like trigonometry. Well, okay. Some people out there may like trigonometry. I don't know how many math majors there are, but it was not that fun for me. Um, learning about wine is fun because you learn it by drinking wine and, and you learn cultural history and you learn all sorts of things. And so there's a aspect of pretension around wine that I've spent my entire career trying to defuse. It's, it shouldn't be pretentious. It's a delight to drink and the stories are entertaining. And I, when I wrote the book, I wanted it to be a pleasure to read, not to be a technical treatise that would instantly make people go to sleep. And one of the biggest compliments I've got from about the book which I'm very gratified by is people in the business who've said, you know, 
basically most people in the business, the last thing they want to do is read a wine book. Um, it's like, oh God, not, not, it's like reading a manual about plumbing. If you're a plumber, it's just not that fun. And I've gotten a lot of feedback from people in the business who, who've really enjoyed it, which is cool because it's meant to be enjoyable. It's meant to be uh, storytelling in a sense. And, uh, well, I think it's all those things. I actually think it's very it's useful too. It's very useful to yeah, have. Like it's it a good, be. useful yeah. guide. Uh, with that, I'd love to close on one of the quotes that I just sure. really loved uh, from your book. If I can see it, where Kristen was supposed to get me some readers or something, but I'm going to do my best. <laughs> no, I'm kidding, Kristen. Uh, wine is, after man, the most adept at telling stories. It is capable of broadcasting messages vast and ancient. It introduces itself with a complete set of identity papers. When I taste a wine, I taste everything that has ever happened in the land where it was raised. I meet the people who grew it, and I feel the hands that touched it. I know that sounds like a bit of a stretch to say that, but wine lives in and of itself. Yes, and that was not me. That's, I know it wasn't. <laughs> that's, that's Luigi Veronelli, a, <laughs> but it's a beautiful who is a brilliant Italian wine writer, and um, it's that's the heart of the book in a sense. Yeah. That's, that's what that book is about. Okay, I ask everybody this at the end. Do you have a cheers or a toast? Anything you say at your house, Ray? Um, we actually don't have a specific thing we say. We say you jokingly. I know what he's got. Something. You know, um, we we usually do this old joke, sort of Irish toast. That's kind of um, I do it. You know, here's here's okay. here's to us. There weren't many of us, and now most of us are dead. But cheers. Cheers. <laughs> okay, give yeah. it up. That is great. Okay, our thanks, of course, to Ray Isle, the author of The World in a Wine Glass, The Insider's Guide to Artisanal, Sustainable, Extraordinary Wines to Drink Now. We encourage everyone to purchase a copy of Ray's book here or at your local artisanal bookstore. (laughs) And if you would like to support the club's efforts in making virtual and in-person programming possible, please visit their website at commonwealthclub.org. I'm Monique Saltani. Thank you so much. Thanks, everybody. Thank Thank you. you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.